Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Well, we are in our psalm series. We've come to Psalm 17 this morning. Would you turn in your Bibles there? Or you can follow along on the screen. Psalm 17. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye, of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps, They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He's like a lion that is eager to tear and as a young lion lurking in hiding places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They're satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you notice that this psalm was given the title, A Prayer of David. This is one of only five psalms in the scriptures that um, have this special title given to them by some compiler of these psalms in history. A Prayer of David. David was a man of prayer as the variety and the number of psalms uh, indicate. That David was accustomed as a matter of habit to go in every circumstance of life to the Lord, to commune with the Lord in prayer. He brings all his joys, he brings his sorrows, he brings his troubles, he brings his triumphs to the Lord. And He communes and fellowships with the Lord in prayer. This is what David is. And and that teaches us that prayer is important. Prayer is the principal means, the principal, the greatest, most important means that God has provided for you and me to have fellowship with him. Here's what J.C. Ryle says about prayer. Prayer is the most important subject in practical religion. All other subjects are second to it. Reading the Bible, keeping the Sabbath, 
hearing sermons, attending public worship, going to the Lord's table, all these are very weighty matters. But none of them are so important as private prayer. Do you value private prayer in your life? Scripture tells us not to neglect the assembly of the saints. Here we are, not neglecting it. But it doesn't command us to to be here together worshiping God 24-7, but only one day in seven. We come to the Lord's table, and we do a very weighty thing. We're renewed in covenant with the Lord as we eat and drink of his body and his blood. But we're not told to do this every day. We're not even explicitly commanded to do it every week, but what Paul says, as often as you do. We live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But we're not warned in Scripture about never putting down our Bible. However, when it comes to prayer, what does it say? It says, Jesus says that we are to pray at all times, Luke 18. Paul says that we're to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5. And in another place he says, in every place. All times, without ceasing, and in every place we are to pray. This tells us that prayer has a unique role in our communion, our fellowship, our worship of God. So do you pray? Do you pray? Unceasing prayer is what David models for us, exemplifies for us in the whole book of Psalms. David was a praying man, and it was a habit of his, a a reflex. It was not something, maybe he had to think about it and work at it, but I've never seen anything like David in life, in my life. A man who has such a variety of things to talk about with God. In this case, David's coming to God to petition him, to ask something of him in a time of great trouble. And we see that as he does so, he does it with an incredible amount of confidence, like a pretty bodacious confidence that he comes before God. And I think he's helped to do this because Gabe is not the kind of man who only comes to God in times of trouble, but also when things are going well. Doug Wilson has a funny way of illustrating our typical use or approach to prayer. When he hears this phrase that you've heard and probably said before in your life, he hears this from his own people, um, well, all we can do now is pray. He says, oh, really, has it come to that? Troubles drive many people to prayer who will not come to God for any other reason. Now, does God hear those prayers? If we will not come to God when times are good, does God hear us when times are bad? When we're driven as a last resort to prayer? That's a very sobering question. It's not... A lot of us want to say, uh, reaffirm God's goodness and his willingness to receive us, but is the person who's coming to God only when things are bad and he's driven to it by the, the worst desperation, is that person coming in sincerity of heart? Is he coming out of love for God? 
David is able to say in verse 1, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Partly because of how constant he lived in prayer, in fellowship with God. David has a good conscience about his prayer life. Wouldn't that be nice? Prayer is one of those topics that you can just get everybody all the time because nobody that I know has a good conscience about it. Boys and girls, since we have you in this service today, young men and women, I want to encourage you all to get in the habit right now as a young person, the time in life when it's easy to start and keep habits, to get in the habit of daily prayer. Get in a habit of daily prayer. Go to God with whatever needs are before you that day. Get in a habit of it now. Troubles increase with life. You listening to me, children? Troubles increase with life. And a habit of prayer will serve you well when troubles come. How will it help you? Well, prayer feeds prayer. Prayer is this way of spending time with God, which increases our love for him, our joy in him, our assurance of his salvation, which causes us to want to draw closer to him and more frequently. Prayer feeds prayer. It, learning a habit of prayer, will, it's, the point is not the, it's not to Learn so you can grow in your eloquence to be more fancy or well-crafted in how you uh, pray to God. God's not impressed with fancy words. What God is impressed with, though, is faith. And he's impressed with earnestness and sincerity of heart. These things grow with use. So children, learn the discipline of prayer. Exercise that muscle and it will grow strong and serve you well. But there's more to our prayerlessness than a lack of discipline. And I think this psalm points to several reasons that we don't pray like David. And also provides encouragements for us to do so. Here are those reasons that I think come from this psalm and we will look at. We don't pray like David because we lack the testimony of a good conscience. We don't pray like David because we lack the testimony of a good conscience. Number two, we don't pray like David because we're ignorant or not mindful of the dangers that are around us. And third, we don't pray like David because we're worldly. Let's look at these in turn. We don't pray like David because we lack the testimony of a good conscience. One of the first things we come up against in this psalm is David's amazing assurance before God that he is righteousness, that he is righteous. David begins by saying, Hear a just cause, O Lord, He knows that the Lord is righteous. He's written this elsewhere. The Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. And so he's going to bring a righteous cause before the Lord in confidence that he will hear it. And what is that righteous cause? The the amazing thing is that it is David himself. 
as a person. Is the, this is the righteous cause he's bringing before God. Save me because I am righteous. He says, first of all, that he, that God should, he asked God to give ear to his prayer, verse 1, which is not from deceitful lips. What does James say about the tongue? That whoever doesn't stumble in what he says is a perfect man. So here's the first evidence David gives of his perfection before God. I'm a perfect man. I don't have a deceitful mouth. Then he says, let my judgment come forth from your presence. This is an evidence of his confidence. He's ready for the judgment. <laughs> Even before he gets through all of his arguments, he's, he's, he's desirous for the good judgment he knows is deserve, deserve, that he deserves. Let your eyes look with equity Look with fairness upon me, Lord, and your judgment will be right. You'll know that you should rule in my favor. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. Why does he say visited me by night? Well, when are we most our true selves? Not when other people are watching, but when we're alone in private. Our true self is most evident. And God, he says, has come to him at that time in the secret place and has what? What has he found there? You've tested me and found, you find nothing. You find nothing against me when I'm most honest, most real. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. Not only has he um, been judged by God and found faultless, he's also built his life on a good principle. He is purposed that his mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept my paths from the violent. I have not gone with the fray. I have not joined with violent, wicked men. I have kept my way pure. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. This is amazing. It seems clear to me that David's whole case rests upon his righteousness, which he claims here to be perfect before God. One commentator calls this the most positive assertion of unsinning obedience that you could imagine. The most positive assertion of unsinning obedience that you could imagine. Now, the book of Psalms presents many challenges for us in our faith. It has, it's full of the judgments of God. It's full of uh, curses upon enemies. Things that are disturbing to us that we have find hard to relate to. One of those things, maybe one of the most significant of those things, is what David's doing right here. Claiming to be righteous before God and demanding a judgment on the basis of that righteousness. It's a very bodacious thing. How does it square with what Scripture says about men and what Scripture says specifically about this man? How does it square? Isaiah 64, 6 says, 
all of us, that would include David, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. You couple that general statement of scripture with what it specifically records about King David and it may seem absurd what David says here. Like a bald-faced lie. How can David, that adulterer, that murderer, that liar, that cheat, that proud census taker, remember that? It appears clear from that passage where David orders Joab to take a census of the people that he was wanting to take pride in, assurance in, comfort in, the majesty of his kingdom by numbers. And it resulted in the death of 70,000 of his countrymen. 70,000 as a judgment from God. How can that man claim such things? Well, I think the answer is twofold. First and foremost, David can claim it, claim righteousness for himself, because David was in Christ. Secondly, he could say these things because of the righteous fruit of Christ's spirit that was working within him visibly that he could see. And we have abundant examples of that too in scripture. David's known actually less for his notorious sins than he is for his zeal for God his humility when confronted with his sin, his love of God's worship, his protection of God's people, his acts of valor that flow from his faith. That's, that comes from somewhere. It's not natural to any man. It comes from God's spirit. Let's look at these in order. First, David could claim perfect righteousness for himself because he was in Christ. It's true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, except for one. Except for one, the righteous Son of God, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. These are exactly the things that David is claiming for himself. Committed no sin, faultless, no deceit in his mouth. Now the good news of the gospel is not just that Christ paid for the sins that you committed, but that you also are given by him his own perfect merit, his own perfect record of righteous acts and deeds, faultless, blameless in all his ways, a fulfiller of God's law. That becomes yours in the gospel as you believe on him by faith. It's called by some the great exchange of the gospel. And it's summed up in a ver- one little verse from 2 Corinthians 5, 521. He made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. He took upon himself our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We took, he, took, he put upon us his righteousness as we believe in him by faith. So all the privileges... All the rights of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, 
belong to his people. They belong to you if you are in Christ. Is Christ your righteousness? Is this your hope? It's the hope of most, professedly at least, it's the hope of most of us here. We have made this profession of faith that our hope is not in our own skill or wisdom or ability or strengths or accomplishments, not in our own works, but only in the works of Jesus Christ that he, get, that he performed on our behalf. So why don't we pray? It's clear that David is motivated with great boldness to come before God because he has this confidence that he's a perfect man in Jesus Christ, that he can come and claim perfection before God. This is, inspires him and helps him in his prayer. If this is our claim and our boast and our hope, where's our prayer? Well, I think the answer lies in the second part of the answer to how, why, how David could claim such bodacious things. And that is, most of us, though we profess this hope, and while, Lord willing, it is a true hope, spend our lives entangled in besetting sin. And it chokes out the good fruit of God's word. And so we're robbed of the assurance, part of the assurance, or part of the way God assures us of our salvation is that we are able to look on our life, get a bird's eye view, and say, is God working in my life? Do I see any of the fruit of Christ's spirit? And when we do, we are able to, to come more boldly to the throne of grace. We have more assurance of salvation. The more we give ourselves to obedience to God, the more we can grow in assurance. Not because we have any confidence in our flesh, but only that it gives evidence that Jesus is in us and that his spirit is at work. And so we have more confidence that we do in fact belong to Jesus because look, there's Jesus coming out. The whole reason that Christ died was for this fruit to come out, for holiness to be produced in us. It says in Titus chapter two that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men and it doesn't have a period. It has a comma. Bringing or instructing us. Here's what it does. It comes, it's revealed to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Ephesians 2.10, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is the whole purpose. It's not an end unto itself. The purpose is that we would bear fruit and that our fruit would remain Good fruit, good works cannot reconcile you to God. Well, they could if you could perform them. <laughs> Even the work of Christ's spirit within you 
is not perfect as long as you live in this life because you have your old man still very much there fighting against God's spirit and, and, and what comes out of you is an admixture of things. You know, even your best works come out tainted and they can't reconcile you to God but they can help assure you as you see Christ's spirit working within you, yeah, I belong to Jesus. And this is how it connects with prayer. 1 John three twenty-one to 22. Beloved, if our, if, so we look on our good works, the works that we trust Christ is performing through us, we, we look upon them and we see something there, our hearts don't condemn us like they're prone to do. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Our hearts are weak. Our faith is weak. We're prone to condemn ourselves and to feel rejected of God. But if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Obedience Confidence before God, prayer. They all belong together. The less we walk in obedience, the less confidence we have before God. The less confidence we have before God, the less we turn to prayer. Here's what Calvin says this portion of the psalm teaches us. By this form of prayer, the Holy Spirit teaches us that we ought diligently to endeavor. We should purpose ourselves to live an upright and innocent life so that if there are any who give us trouble, we may be able to boast that we are blamed and persecuted wrongly. Giving ourselves to obedience is a help to prayer because it will increase our assurance which increases our boldness before God. Well, having established himself in the beginning of this psalm as a righteous man, partly on the basis of, or in one sense, on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness, and also on the basis of Christ's righteousness at work within him, producing good fruit, David then turns and gets to the work of asking God for what he wants. And this is, brings us to our second point, which is we don't pray like this because we, are, we fail to appreciate the real dangers that are all around us, that actually we have a lot in common with David, even though we feel we don't. Here's what he says. He asks God to wondrously show his loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand and from those who rise up against them. Wondrously show your loving kindness. Keep me as the apple of your eye. What's the apple of the eye? Well, it's the very center, the pupil, the most precious and important part. And God has designed the eye how? It has a built-in amazing built-in protection that I can be weeding my grass 
or trimming my grass. Jenna always laughs at me when I say weed eat. But I can be trimming my grass and something can fly up at me suddenly. And of course, unlike Andrew Henry, I don't wear the eye protection. And it can fly up and without even, I don't have to think about it before this thing has a chance to get to my eye and it's, it's, it's blinding speed, phew, comes down my eyelid and protects me from it. This is what David's asking God to do for him. Keep me as one keeps the apple of his eye. Immediately, reflexive and effective. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Cover me and hide me and protect me like a a hen does her chicks from the hawk that encircles above her. From the, save, do these things, save me, hide me from the wicked who despoil me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. Verse 10, they've closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He's like a lion that's eager to tear and as a young lion lurking in hiding places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Lord. What's abundantly clear is that David is conscious, aware of enemies all around him, that they seek his complete destruction and eradication from the earth, they, they're lying in wait to tear him to pieces. He knows this. He's scared, and he's driven to prayer. He desperately needs God's deliverance in his life. Now, most of us find it hard to relate to, God, to David in these things. Some of us, I know, just in recent weeks, have had somebody, some particular person who they know, a real person, physically threaten them and for, 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 righteous, for, for, for their righteousness, for their godliness. And so some of us at times find a reason to or we're able to relate directly with what David's saying here, but not many of us. Not many of us. How do I know it's not many of us. Well, because I never hear anybody praying like this. If we were aware of having enemies like this, we would pray, wouldn't we, Don? But brothers and sisters, we are much more in danger than we care to admit. Much more in danger constantly from real enemies than we go around thinking about. And so therefore we don't pray like David prayed. We're not driven to our knees through concern for our lives like we should be. What are the enemies that threaten us? Well, public enemy number one is who? Satan. How does scripture describe Satan? We're commanded by the apostle Peter to be sober, be of sober spirit and to be on the alert because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking, seeking someone to devour. 
The fact that we have to be warned in this way, exhorted in this way, shows that we are sluggish and lazy in thinking about the real enemy that is around us all the time. We have to be provoked to think about it. We have to be taught. We're normally heedless about this danger of Satan in our lives. Is he, is he a real danger? He's a deadly enemy, and he desires your destruction. And he's, he has set all his skill, all his desire upon you. And so the only, and, and how vulnerable are you to him? It's like breaking the, the thinnest twig by a strong man. The only hope you have of escaping the destruction of your soul is God's intervention and protection and care. And if you woke up in the morning remembering the danger that Satan poses to you, you would pray and ask God for things like, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me today in the shadow of your wings, Lord, that I might not fall victim to the lies, the destruction of Satan, but that I would remain your true child, that I would put on the armor of God today and be able to fight against him with your help and with your strength and truth. Satan is a real enemy and we are ignorant of it most of the time, not mindful of it. We don't keep that in mind. Satan has his agents, though, in the world. Satan works through real people to lead us astray, to harm us, to wound us, to cause us to doubt God's goodness. It comes to us in the form of professors at college, teachers at school, classmates, dorm mates, who don't believe, who don't trust in the Lord. It's men and women who make decisions about what go on billboards. It's, it's everywhere, all the time. The lies of Satan, unwittingly and wittingly, are coming to you through the words and the decisions and the actions of men in the world. And you wake up in the morning, and it's a battlefield. And do you prepare yourself for battle with prayer, putting yourself under God's protection? There's another enemy. That's you, the old nature that's very much alive and well or at least kicking and screaming inside of you. And it wars against the spirit. Your flesh wars against the spirit. You are your own enemy. Do you wake up in the morning and ask God for protection against that? Lord, I want to live out of the new me today that you have created in Christ Jesus. I don't want to give in to the desires of my sinful flesh, so Lord Jesus, help me, protect me, deliver me, rise up. 
conquer all that is evil in me. We don't pray like David prayed because we're ignorant of these enemies. We're not mindful of them. Then lastly, we don't pray like David prayed because we're worldly. This is the last section of the psalm. David closes by appealing to a fundamental difference that he sees between himself and his foes. He asks in verse 14 that God would deliver him from men of the world. Deliver me from men of the world. And what are they like, these men of the world, whose portion is in this life? Their whole frame of reference is the here and now. All of their goals reside firmly fixed in history. They work to produce for themselves heaven on earth as best as their feeble strength will provide it. Some of them have more strength than others, and so they amass more pleasure. Every one of us, though, knows that we can't keep it because we have to die. We're going to die. And so we have to take some comfort in that. How do we do it? Well, we think, oh, children, my family. There's a great purpose to this that's a little bit bigger than me. I take satisfaction in the fact that I'm able to pass on to this my, my legacy, my, my treasure, my wealth. That's what David's saying. They, their whole portion is in this life. God fills their belly with his treasure and they're satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their babes. This is as good as it gets for a worldling to get as much pleasure and comfort and security as this life will afford them with all the skill that they have and then to leave it to the next generation after them. Some of them are perverse enough to bypass their own children and choose some charity or some other person to, to pass it on to, but it's, it's something, a next generation of something, something that will live on. I was talking, it, it, that too is vanity. As I was talking to somebody yesterday, one of the pastors, about how many times they've seen somebody amass a fortune pass it on to their children, and their, their child turns their $20 million into two because they're a fool. It's a totally empty hope. Not that it's not, it's not bad, of course, to leave an inheritance to your children and your children's children. That's a godly thing to do. But that's their whole scope, their whole frame of reference, their whole desire. They'd be satisfied to do that. And that makes them a worldling. And because they're a worldling, listen to this from Philippians 3. Paul says, many walk, many go around living, of whom I have often told you, and now I tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Why was David persecuted by these men? 
But Paul goes on to say in verse 20 of, that, of Philippians 3, for our citizenship as a Christian is where? Is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the confessed hope of King David in this psalm. He says in verse 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. The worldling satisfaction comes from his belly, from his food, from his steak at night, from his glass of scotch. Comes from a hefty bank account. That's his whole satisfaction. That's his delight. That's his hope and his dream come true. And David's citizenship is not in this life, but in the life to come. That's where he stores up his treasure. That's where he looks and fixes his gaze. And it's not just the, the treasure of that life, particularly that he talks about. It's, it is God himself just seeing him. That is the entire delight of King David. The end of his life, his every goal and ambition is to see the Lord, to look upon his likeness. You know, it says, uh, this is off the top of my head, but I, Jesus talks about the apostle, not the apostle, but the, John the Baptist about him being a prophet and a great prophet and how no, there's not been any greater prophet before him. But then he turns and says the most amazing thing. You will do, Stephen, help me. What is it? Is it you will do greater works or the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him? Jesus did say about himself that you'll do greater works than me. Didn't he say that? What on earth is that about? How can you Let's just say for the sake of argument that you're the least in the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) How could you be greater than John the Baptist and perform greater works than Jesus? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that you live in the revelation of Jesus Christ. That you through his word, are able to see what he has done. John the Baptist didn't even see that. He knew who he was. He did see the Lord, but he wasn't like the apostles and the fruit of their ministry. We have looked upon the Lord Jesus Christ who reveals to us the glory of God. What is your hope? Where's your satisfaction? C.S. Lewis says this. It's a really great quote. I'd encourage you all to get it in some form. I couldn't tell you offhand where it comes from, but it's easy to find. It's all over the internet. And it's about our desires, and it's about satisfaction. Listen to this. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels. If the things that Jesus says will be true for us if we believe in him and invest in his kingdom, if we consider those things, 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We don't pray like David because we don't really, well, let me put it more directly. We don't pray like David because we are more like David's enemies than we are like him. We're men of the world. And so we have no motive to pray. There's no need to look up. We're satisfied in what we've managed to draw together for ourselves. But there's an expiration date to all that. And it's a fiery one. And we are to look up to God, to trust in him, and give ourselves to fellowship with him, and to be satisfied only in knowing him. Where's your hope? Well, consider this morning the righteousness that you have by faith before God. And the bold confidence that that should give you to come into his presence in prayer. Consider also the very serious threats and dangers that are all around you, seeking to destroy you constantly, from within and without. And consider also the glory that is to be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ as you, with unveiled face, look upon him. And let these things stir you up this week to a life of prayer. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would teach us to pray. That we would learn from David to give ourselves faithfully to communion with you through prayer. We do thank you for the gift of prayer and we confess that we neglect it and misuse it and we're sorry. But Lord, we do want to know you. We want to be your obedient sons and daughters. And the best thing we can do, the most important thing we can do is talk to you and listen to you in prayer. Would you give us an appetite to do that and help to do it? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.